Hey there, this is Melissa in Indianapolis, and you're listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Welcome back to Two Broads Talking Politics. As usual, I am one of your co-hosts, Sophie, and I'm here with your other co-host, Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Sophie. And joining us tonight is Kate Trudell. She is a Democratic candidate for the Tennessee House of Representatives from District 16. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me. I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for being here. Could you just sort of tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to be running for the Tennessee House of Representatives? Sure. So I grew up in a small town, rural community in South Carolina, and my mother was an educator. My father ran a small family business that my grandfather started about 75 years ago. And I moved to Tennessee about 15 years ago and spent most of my career in social services and now run an organization and have for the past four years that serves the victims of human trafficking. So we do training and awareness around the issue and fight for sort of statewide change and serve survivors of trafficking. And I have two small children, one of whom has special needs and is just now school age. And so as my husband and I were kind of trying to navigate the public school system for our oldest child, who was facing sort of an uphill battle with these additional needs that he has, we really had a a big challenge, a big tough time ahead of us. And the first year dealing with that system did not go very well for our family. And so during that experience, I started kind of looking at who in our community and across our state have the capacity and ability to influence specifically our public education system. And at that time, I realized that the Tennessee House of Representatives representative for our for our community and our district had been in office for almost 25 years and was just so happened to be on the education subcommittee. So I thought, how great. My representative for my district has the ability to influence this important issue for my family and pretty quickly came to realize that, unfortunately, this individual was not protecting our public education system and putting that as a priority for our state. And so as I began to look further, I realized um, there was a lot of gaps between where I felt like our community's priorities should be and where our representation was. And as that began to unfold and just talking with my husband and being so heavily involved in, in a an industry that focuses so much on what can we do for others. And every day I wake up and think, what can I do today to make the world better for someone else? As I was thinking about my career and where I wanted our state to be, especially as it pertains to how our state is launching our children into adulthood, I realized things have to change and I'm not content to leave that up to someone else. And if I know things have to change, then I have to be part of that. So earlier this year, um, when kind of faced with this decision, we realized that no one else was going to challenge this incumbent for the seat. And in fact, in almost 25 years, this individual has only been challenged twice in all 25 years for this race. And it just felt like the right time to do the right thing and to step up. So here I am. You talked about education and and that being important, and and sure. obviously the the human trafficking is something that's important to you. But what are the other kinds of issues that are really driving your campaign, but are also the things you're hearing from people in your district as you're knocking on doors? Sure, I think the biggest issue that I'm hearing is access to quality health care, and certainly something that's really important to me and my family. Of course, we have a a child who has special needs, so has required um, really specialized therapy each week, and that is difficult and a you know a financial impact on our family. And I also have a pre-existing heart condition, and so that is also a fear that our family faces. You know, we have sat down at the kitchen table and tried to balance between 
paying medical bills and putting food on the table. And that is a position that no one in our state should be in. And I've heard that conversation over and over again as I've been talking with voters and knocking on doors is it's not it's not feasible for people in our state to be put in that position. And Tennessee is one of the few states that has elected not to expand Medicaid. So we're leaving a whole pot of federal dollars on the table that are going to other states and not providing the space for everyone in our state to have access to quality, affordable health care. And in fact, almost a little over 27,000 of those individuals are veterans, veterans in our state that we, our legislature has decided it's okay for them to fall through the gap and not have access to quality, affordable health care. And there is research that tells us almost 70% of individuals in Tennessee support expanding Medicaid, including our Republican governor. It's been one of his big issues that he's pushed for the past few years and just hasn't been able to gain traction and get the legislature to pass in Tennessee, which is the bill that he proposed to expand Medicaid. And I think that as the representative for District 16, I would certainly make that a priority to ensure that everyone in our state has access to the health care they need to thrive and to move forward in life. Um, and I think the other piece in that is ensuring that our economy works for everyone in our state. Tennessee actually leads the nation in the number of individuals who rely on minimum wage jobs. And we know that there is a big gap between minimum wage and a living wage. So if you think about that, we have the most people in the nation who are functioning and trying to make ends meet well below a living wage. And we see the ripple effect of that in our economy. And so finding a way to increase the minimum wage to well above the the national minimum wage standard in our state doesn't actually have a minimum wage, any minimum wage laws on the books. So addressing that, ensuring that we really invest in our infrastructure and our education, um, which helps platform individuals into finding well-paying jobs, having access to rural broadband and those resources that they need to move ahead in life. So I think education and healthcare and an economy that works for each one of our each one of us in Tennessee are kind of the big things that I've heard across the myriad of individuals I've talked with over the past four or five months. And you know, I think a lot of people have asked me, you know, I'm fiscally conservative. How do you expect to pay for all of this? And I think that's a great question. And I think ultimately the answer is we have the money. It's about how we prioritize the money that we spend. Right now in Tennessee, we spend per prisoner in our for-profit prison system to a student in our public education system. We outspend three to one. We spend supporting prisoners in our for-profit prison system to the to per student in our public education system. And I think that speaks volumes to the priorities that we have in Tennessee. And so I recognize that keeping taxes where they are is an important issue for people in Tennessee. And certainly for our family, where every penny counts, I get it. People are fearful of raising taxes. I also know that taxes fund education, infrastructure, healthcare, and the systems that we need to move our state forward. But I think we, at the end of the day, have the money to pay for increases in teacher pay, expanding Medicaid, fully funding our public education system, expanding broadband, ensuring that individuals in our state have access to a living wage job. We have the money. It's just prioritizing how we spend it. Can you tell us a little bit about District 16, sort of like, is it a very rural district or urban? What are some of the sort of major cities that are there? Sort of give us a little bit of context for listeners who who aren't in Tennessee. Sure. So as, as many districts are these days, it's kind of an odd shape. So there's two main portions of District 16. One we call Fountain City, which is actually where my family and I live, and then another community called Powell. And and Fountain City is more of an urban environment. It's much more walkable and kind of has a main thoroughfare and not, not far at all from where 
from where we live, much more urban. And Powell is very different. It's a lot more rural and has several huge neighborhoods, like with five to 900 homes. Uh, but outside of that is is much more spread out and not as easily walkable, um, but certainly has that sort of local high school that everybody goes to. And even those who have long graduated and families whose children are grown and have grandchildren of their own still go to high school football games on Friday night and still support, are very involved in that, that hometown Powell community. Tennessee ranks 50th in voter participation, <laughs> which is <laughs> not so good. What are you hearing this year? Do you do you get the sense that there are more people who are interested in voting this year? Do you think that that's going to make a difference in November as to what the the voting and the elections look like? Absolutely. I think some of the main things that we've heard this year have been, especially in my district, where I think I might have mentioned before that our current incumbent has run unopposed only twice as he had opposition in 20, almost 25 years. And so for so long, what individuals in our districts have felt is they had nothing to vote for. So why turn up and vote if I have no choice? And so more than anything, even individuals who are pretty far removed from sort of the approach and policy that I have as a, as a proud Democrat, I think I have heard well, I believe in the democratic process, and I'm glad that we have choice this year, and I'm proud to be able to cast my vote, even if it might not be for you. I'm proud that there is a process where that, where my voice matters, and and I've certainly heard that for, from individuals who, you know, are on the democratic side of things that have longed for someone to vote for over the past 25 years specific to this district and even across the states with our state Senate races and our congressional races and our, you know, a mayoral race that just, just passed um, locally. I think we have had candidates, great candidates, oftentimes on both sides of the ballot. And so I think that has been kind of revitalized the voting process for our community. And I think We've certainly seen an increase in voter turnout, and I know that's one of the biggest focuses for our campaign over the next few months is to just get people out to vote. Yes, of course, I would be honored if they would vote for me, and I hope that they do, but more than that, I want them to recognize the value of their vote. And I think even specifically in the state of Tennessee, there's some, there's an, another level of meaning with that. Because Tennessee was the state that helped to ratify women's right to vote, we were the deciding vote that gave women the right to cast their ballot for the candidate of their choosing. And so especially it being the representative from East Tennessee, you know, Knoxville and my community has two statues dedicated to that. Um, and I think that speaks volumes of about the community in which we live, that this that voting and the right to vote should be valued and should be utilized. And so I think that's a narrative we've been hearing over and over again this election cycle that I haven't been enthusiastic about voting in the past because there haven't been candidates I've been, you know, passionate about or there hasn't even been a candidate that was that my party could vote for in my district. And I'm glad to see that all of that has changed. And I know, I think the last election cycle, there were, I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think it was certainly in the minority, like 30% of races in Tennessee were contested. And now it's 95 plus percent of races in Tennessee are contested for this election cycle. So I think that speaks volumes to the mobilization that's happening across our state. One of the issues I know I've seen you mention on your Facebook page and comes up again today as we're sitting here, there was another mass shooting just earlier today, is is gun violence and legislation around guns. I'm sure that's a tricky issue in a place like Tennessee. 
what uh, what are you hearing from people as you talk to them? What what sorts of things, if any, are people saying about gun violence and the need for greater legislation around guns? Sure, uh, certainly the things I've been hearing are on vast ends of the spectrum. There's not a whole lot of middle ground talk. So certainly a lot of my peers who um, are either running or heavily involved in the Democratic Party are much more vocalized about, um, you know, having common sense gun laws and looking at the system and that we have and improving that. And then certainly, you know, I'm from a small rural town in, in South Carolina where hunting and and having a gun was sort of a way of life. So a lot of, you know, my family and friends from from my childhood certainly still um, are, and in East Tennessee, for sure, certainly still have that kind of as a way of life and a culture that they, they're fearful that could change um, and are very adamant about protecting their, their access to, to have guns. But I think at this period of time, we have to recognize that access matters, access to guns make a difference. It affects your your heightened potential for being a victim of a gunshot. And it also affects individuals who are close to you. And so I think we have to to look at that research and acknowledge that it's truth and recognize that there has to be a way to make the system better. And you know, I don't I certainly don't want to stand up and say everyone's guns need to go away. I recognize that there are people who, for a myriad of reasons, might still feel the need to have a gun, whether it's they do hunt um, because that's, you know, a sort of a traditional thing that they participate in and a way that they, and they do it um, in a respectful way where they utilize the meat that 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 they gain from that experience and all of those things, um, or they need it for protection or whatever the case might be. But we have to have universal background checks. We have to make sure that individuals who have access to guns are vetted and don't have a history of domestic violence or violent crime. And there really is no need for individuals in our communities to have AR-15 or assault style rifles or weapons, you know, if you're using them for protection, your best bet is a handgun under your pillow or wherever you store it in a safe locked place, please. But if you're using it for hunting, you don't need an assault rifle because it's going to annihilate the thing that you're hunting. And so I, I really don't know that there is a rational argument for having assault style weapons in the hands of civilians. Sure. In you know, the act of war in engaged combat, that is a whole different story. But when we're talking about individuals having weapons in their home and having access to guns, they have to have a vetted process to have the ability to purchase those guns. And then they have to be the right weapons that make sense for civilians to own. And I think that's all intuitive and rational. And certainly there's going to be heated arguments on both sides. The issue and the well-being, especially of our children, and, you know, I think about the children who have lost their lives to gun violence in schools, which is a place that should be the safest outside the home for them to be. I just cannot imagine us as a society not recognizing the weight of that and saying whatever disagreements we might have, ultimately making sure this process works for all of us is more important. And we have to find that common ground to make sure we have common sense gun laws and provide the process for individuals who are safe to own guns to have them. And those who are screened out because of their background of violence or domestic violence or whatever the case is, don't have access to those weapons. Is there anything else that you would like to make sure we talk about? In reflecting on why I wanted to run and what is sort of the catalyst for me doing this. I think often of my grandmother who was an orphan and was adopted as a young girl by a a couple of missionaries who then gave her the life that she hoped to have. And as an adult, then she felt compelled to 
adopt other children and have taken foster children and care for them and kind of pay it forward. And in that process, she was so dedicated to that that she kind of became known in the the small rural Wisconsin community where she lived of where she and my grandfather lived of being the home that would take any child. Most of the children that other families would not take because it was the fifties and the sixties and war was happening. So if it was a child of a race that was not accepted in that community or um, a child of a different background, a lot of families wouldn't accept them. But my grandmother and grandfather welcomed all children with open arms into their home. And there was one moment where my grandmother took in, uh, a baby who was of another, another race and was very sick. And she went to the hospital to try to get this infant care and no one would help her because she was a white woman with a brown baby. And she pleaded with them and ultimately that baby died. And I think about that message that so often there are people in our community who are immediately cast aside because they're from the wrong zip code or they have the wrong skin color or they have the wrong parents. And it is time for that to change because first and foremost, we are all humans and we are all deserving of the same respect and dignity. And it is time that we have representatives in our state, in our country that have that mentality. And I think about how gut-wrenching that experience was for my grandmother and that baby and all of the individuals across our country who've had similar experiences. And it's time for that to change. And whether, you know, I'm certainly hopeful that I can be part of that change. And I think even just running a campaign is part of that change. But it's time that we all step up and do our part and hopefully the collective impact that all of us have in running our campaigns across the state and across the U.S. can chip away at that mentality that some of us deserve more than others because that's not the case. We are all equal and all deserving of the same respect and humanity. If people would like to help your campaign out, how can they do that? Yeah, if, if people are interested in Getting involved or supporting the campaign, you can visit our website, which is votetrudel.com, V-O-T-E-T-R-U-D-E-L-L.com. And there's a form you can fill out if you want to volunteer. There's a button you can click if you're willing to contribute to the campaign. Certainly every penny counts, even $2, $3, $5 contributions are a big impact for our campaign because um, we're all people run. So we, we function on donations from people, not not corporations and not super PACs or special interests. So every little bit counts for a campaign like ours. And you can follow us on social media. We have a Facebook and Twitter page too, which people updated on what our campaign is doing and other ways to get involved over the next few months because we'll certainly need all the help we can get. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with us. This is really great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You want to save democracy, but you just can't seem to get off your couch. Well, you're in luck. Thanks to the magic of technology, you can now canvas for Democratic candidates from the comfort of your own living room. An organization called Red to Blue has a virtual canvassing program. It allows you to text registered voters and let them know about blue candidates, upcoming events, and of course, encourage them to vote in November. Red to Blue is targeting key districts the Democrats want to flip or hold on to. All you need is a computer and a couch, or a chair, or you could even stand if you want. They're not picky. Red to Blue will train you, they'll give you a script, and show you how to use their online dashboard. And they'll give you the voters to contact. The best part, this texting approach really works. It's not invasive, and it's more comfortable for people to engage with. It's especially effective with millennials. And we're not going to mention some gross stereotype about why that is. So... Whether you're an introvert or an overachiever with too much on her plate, or just lazy, we're not judging. Virtual canvassing could be the activism you're looking for. To get started, just go to redtoblue.org to sign up. That's R-E-D, the number two, B-L-U-E dot org. On this segment, we have with us Jennifer Vinoy, who is running for the Tennessee House in District 34. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. 
can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background and why you decided to run for state house? Sure, absolutely. I was actually not involved in politics at all for most of my adult life. And I was a single mom. I graduated from MTSU here in Murfreesboro with two small preschool kids and took a job as as a preschool teacher at their school so that they could get a great education and I could get free childcare. It didn't pay well. I didn't have insurance. And as they graduated from that preschool program, I realized that the public school system wasn't going to work for them very well. So I decided to homeschool them and needed a position in my life that would allow me to do that. So I started working nights as a restaurant manager and homeschooling them and stayed in the restaurant and hospitality industry for about 15 years. And still, you know, I had two more kids come later and public schools were the right choice for them. It just kind of all flipped around so that restaurants were not working so well in my world. And then my dad in early 2016 had congestive heart failure. And it really was for my family's benefit for me to not work anymore, to be able to take care of him, to be at home with my family. And I was lucky enough to be in a position to do that. That was actually during the the election cycle of 2016. So I got an earful and an eyeful of what was going on in that (laughs) election cycle. And it just broke my heart by every stretch of the imagination broke my heart. So through that year, my dad got better and we were really lucky for that. But I also realized that I had been complicit and complacent in my civic duties. And, you know, I got up after the election, I looked in the mirror and I said, Jennifer, this is your fault. What are you going to do about it? And from that point forward, first I organized the Women's March in Nashville and it was beautiful. We had a great event, 30,000 people plus maybe showed up. And once it was over, we all patted ourselves on the back and said, yay, we did something. And I looked in the mirror again and said, you know what? We really you know, we did, we made it, we made a lot of noise, but there's more to be done. And still having that responsibility on my shoulders, I moved into the state legislature at that point and really got an eyeful of what was happening uh, in Nashville for the benefit of the state or lack thereof. And, you know, in Tennessee, we're in a really large super minority and there's things, you know, that needed to happen for the benefit of the citizens, especially in Rutherford County, with the growth that we have. And I kind of built myself as a bridge between our state legislature and the following that I had built up on social media because of the Women's March and really got a lot of people involved in what was happening in our state legislature. And then I started looking around and I was going, you know, something's got to change. We have to be able to have open conversations. We have to be able to be concerned with what the citizens want and what our constituents want and what's in the best interest of the family for the people in Rutherford County. And that wasn't being addressed from everything that I could tell. So again, once that season was over, I looked in the mirror and I just was like, okay, what's next? Because now we've done a lot of great activism and advocacy for the state, but something else has to happen. And at that point, I realized something else really had to happen at the state at the state legislature, that we can create as much change as we want to from the outside, but it doesn't really matter if it's falling on deaf, deaf ears from the inside. So we needed to get people into the state legislature that had an open mind and open ears and were in touch with their community. And at that point, I said, that, that person's you. Let's do this. Could you tell us a little bit about District 34? Like, where is it in Tennessee? Sort of, what's it like? What is the population like there? So District 34 is the southwest quadrant of Rutherford County, and it is an absolutely beautiful and very diverse area. So we've got about a fourth of Murfreesboro City proper, which is the dead center of Tennessee. And we have the suburbs. We have a large area of rural communities that have been typically farmland for, you know, forever. So years ago, Murfreesboro was a small college town surrounded by farmland. And at this point in time, we are growing 
to the point that I think we're within the top 10 growing communities, growing areas in the United States. Rapid, rapid growth. So right now, you mentioned that the Democrats are in a super minority. I think right now there's something like 74 of the 99 seats are held by Republicans. So just to get it out of a supermajority for Republicans, you'd have to flip, uh, my math is bad, eight nine seats or eight. some nine seats. So in addition to obviously wanting to flip the seat that you are running for to, to have the greatest impact, it, it, it's going to mean a lot of seats flipping. Are you talking to other House candidates around the state, what are you seeing as both the sort of energy in your district and the districts around the state? So the energy in in my district, in the August elections, our Democrat vote was up over 2014 by over 150%. I mean, it was amazing, the people that are coming out to actually participate in, in the process. I think that that's happening in a lot of areas across the state, I think that we have a really great opportunity to flip those nine seats in order to get us out of the super, super minority. And I also am, like I primarily talk to people that are not necessarily strong Democrats. So I talk to anybody that votes all, you know, regularly. If they're registered to vote, I'm knocking on their door or I'm calling them. And I spend a lot of time talking to people that are just ready for us to come back together as a community. You know, I mean, I live in a neighborhood where I can go knock on my neighbor's door and ask for a cup of sugar. And they'll say, yes, you know, we know each other. And the political climate has done a bit of dividing, you know, in that respect, but not to the point that if you know, if you go and knock on somebody's door and you say, let's have a conversation and let's talk civilly about about the issues that really matter to us as residents of Rutherford County, it seems to really open a door to conversation that needs to happen and isn't happening in our legislature. And that's the problem. So what are some of those issues that are really important to you, but important to the people that you're talking to as you're going around and having those conversations? Sure. So my number one concern is is access to affordable health care and expanding Medicaid in the state of Tennessee, that we have far too many people that are living on the edge or don't have access. And we we actually had our Republican governor put forth a bill to ensure Tennessee by expanding Medicaid and our legislature would not pass it. And the vast majority of the people that I have talked to across the state are for the expansion because we're just leaving money on the table. You know, it's putting it's putting politics above people. And that, quite frankly, is just reprehensible. So there's that in Rutherford County in particular, with the growth that we've got, we're adding a thousand students a year to our public school system. And we need to focus very clearly and very directly on ensuring that our public schools are properly funded and completely funded, that they have the resources that are available. In Rutherford County, we have some of the best school districts in the state of Tennessee, and we need to keep it that way, and we need to improve them. So ensuring that our teachers are paid well so that they're not leaving our community and that our students are not being over-tested and wasting their time on tests that don't work. For the past four years, our standardized testing program has not worked for either the the teachers, nor the school districts, nor the students. And it's been a travesty. And as I'm out and talking to people about that in particular, when I'm talking to educators about that, and talking to folks that are special, you know, that are teachers in the special needs programs, in Rutherford County, they're spending two to three months either testing or preparing for tests that's nothing but stressful and has no advantageous, but has no advantage for either the teachers, the students, or the system. And then, of course, Rutherford County is growing like crazy, so our infrastructure is not keeping up with the amount of growth that we have. 
We have an awful lot of state highways that are two-lane highways with absolutely zero shoulder. So I have a 16-year-old son that's recently gotten his driver's license, and we are very clear on you cannot drive here because if you get a flat tire, there is no place for you to go. You know, problems like that need to be solved. We need to be looking at them and thinking about them. And our interstate from a lot of our residents commute to Nashville to work and they have to travel I-24. And that could be a commute that, you know, is less than 30 miles, but could take up to two and a half hours during rush hour. Are you hearing at all about things like high-speed internet? And, you know, we're hearing as people are talking about infrastructure around the country, we're hearing about some of these issues that, you know, you think infrastructure, you think things like, roads or, or power lines or stuff, but that it, it goes much deeper than than that, the kinds of things that really need to be set up. Are those things that you're hearing about in your district as well? Yeah, in a, in a very large way. We have, in our rural communities, there's still houses that have actually no access to internet in their homes. So those children can't do their homework. And the parents, if they want to start an online business, that's not accessible to them. We are working on it. We've got a great county commissioner that is working through the Rockville area and really trying to get broadband into those rural areas. But it's going to be a long, hard process. But it is it is a big problem for many of our residents. And even in, even in downtown Murfreesboro, if you're not on a Wi-Fi connection from one of the businesses, the Internet is very, very slow. So if I'm trying to post something on Facebook or what have you, frequently I have to wait until I get outside of our downtown area in order to make that happen. So one issue that we've been talking a lot about with a lot of candidates from the Midwest and the South is the opioid addiction crisis. Kelly and I are both originally from Ohio, where that crisis is really in full swing. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Tennessee has been affected and sort of the things you would like to do if elected to sort of help stem that tide. Yeah, absolutely. So the opioid addiction, the opioid crisis has hit us very hard in Tennessee. And unfortunately, what's happened in the state of Tennessee is that it has turned into an either or So we've got very strict regulations now on who can get medication and how it's administered and how it's regulated, which is great for those, you know, great to help stem the the actual addiction process of it. But the flip side is that we also have residents that really depend on that medication and use it appropriately and are not addicted that are having very difficult times accessing it. And I strongly believe that Medicaid expansion in the state will help alleviate that. It will help provide treatment programs for those that are addicted. It will help provide counseling in rural areas where there are big problems. And then on the flip side, we also need to start introducing other medications such as medical cannabis in order to give people an alternative. I've talked to many of the people in my area that have said I would absolutely utilize medical cannabis if it were available to me and if it were legal, but they will not use it if it's not legal. But at the same time, they're having difficulty getting the medication that they need in order to function through their day. I'm really glad you brought up medical cannabis because I feel like that is one of the few truly bipartisan issues right now at the forefront of of American political life. I, I see Republicans and Democrats coming together over that issue, so... I'm glad you. Mm-hmm. Glad you we actually up. had a we ha- actually had a bill come into our legislature, and it was a a very much bipartisan bill, mm-hmm. and it got squashed. But before it got squashed, it also got pretty much gutted, so that any of the like the financial and revenue benefits mm. that would have been coming into our state because we had legalized medical cannabis, then. It was actually those benefits were going to other states because they weren't going to allow distribution or or growth here in in the state of Tennessee. Yeah. So I I agree. It is 100 percent a bipartisan issue and there's a lot of bipartisan support for it. And again, we need to flip those nine seats so that we can make that happen. 
Is there anything else that you would like to make sure that we talk about? We're working really hard to find those common threads, and we're having a lot of really phenomenal conversations. I think one of the sort of under-advertised aspects of the blue wave is how many Democratic candidates are now talking about issues that I think most people can agree on. But I was talking to a friend of mine earlier, and he was saying, oh, Democrats, they, they he's a he's a Republican, they need to stop talking mm-hmm. about Trump impeachment. And I said, well, they're not talking about Trump impeachment. I interview right. Democrats every week, <laughs> and this they talk about the same things. All the candidates are talking about education, are talking about health care, and are talking about infrastructure, just like you are. Like, those are the issues that people really care about, those, those, you know, what were we calling them, the, the kitchen table issues. The kitchen table issues. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's those exactly are, and, right. And that's what I'm hearing from Democrats across the country, and it's fascinating because it's everywhere. It's candidates in California. It's candidates in Tennessee. It's candidates in Alabama. It's everywhere. Well, those are the things that will bring higher paying jobs to Rutherford County. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. bottom line. You know, mm-hmm. if we can if we can focus in government on those kitchen table issues, the ability for people to get to work, the ability for people to have preventative health care and to take care of themselves with their, when they're sick or injured without losing their house and home and livelihood. And if we can educate our children then we provide an environment in which industry wants to come here. And it's such a beautiful space. So I can't imagine why industry wouldn't want to come here if we provide them the resources that are necessary for them to be here. It just makes sense. So if our listeners would like to help out your campaign, how can they do that? You can find me at jennifervanoy.com. There is a link to my Act Blue page there. I am also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Jen Vinoy TN. Pretty easy to find all over the place. Excellent. We'll put those links up on our website as well. And we can use all the help we can get. You know, we've got a lot of great races happening in, in Tennessee, and it's a different environment than it's been for a long time. But I think that sometimes the importance of state level politics gets overshadowed by what happens on the federal level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are the things that are going to affect people in their day-to-day lives on a regular basis. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to us and thank you for running. I'm so thrilled to see so many good Democrats running in Tennessee this year. I am too. And it has been a pleasure. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Tonight, joining us is Dennis Potvin. He is a Democratic candidate for the State House of Representatives in Tennessee from District 68. Welcome, Dennis. Well, thank you, Kelly and Sophia. It's good to be here. It's good to have you with us. Could you just sort of introduce yourself to our listeners? Sort of who are you and and how did you come to be running for the State House? Well, this is actually my first political campaign since 1989. I ran for treasurer of my senior class back in high school, and I won. I'm happy to say I got 60% of the vote. I ran unopposed, and I got 60% of the vote. So that was my last election. Fast forward many years later, I was voting in the 2016 election, and obviously there was a lot happening during that time, and I expected the outcome. But when I went to vote for state House of Representatives, I noticed that my opponent, Curtis Johnson, was running unopposed again. And this was the fourth time in five elections that he had run without an opponent. And it, it's, it hadn't offended me before, but it did this time. And I said to my wife, how in, in this city, with students and soldiers and small business owners and farmers and factory workers, how can we not have a Democrat run for this position? It just made no sense. And so after talking it over with my family and some of my close friends, I decided to throw my hat in the ring. So this is my first political campaign, like I said, since for about 29 years ago. 
and uh, hopefully the outcome will be the same. Hopefully we'll win. That's great. And you're one of the first Democrats to run. I think you're one of the first Democrats to run since 2010, right? Yeah, I am the first Democrat to run since 2010 and only the second one since 2006. There's a little bit of a misconception that that this is a ruby red state and especially this district's ruby red. But the fact is, we had a Democratic representative for 18 years up until 2004 when Curtis Johnson won. So the potential is there and there's enough registered Democrats there. They just have to turn out. And Tennessee ranks dead last in the country in voter turnout. And what we saw was in 2016, perhaps the quality of the candidates, uh, perhaps because uh, Democrats were simply complacent because we'd had our president for, you know, for eight years, uh, they stayed home. And not only did Donald Trump win Tennessee, but a lot of Republicans won in Tennessee because they either didn't have a opponent or simply because the turnout was so low on the Democratic side. So, again, hopefully the, the quote unquote blue wave that we'll, we hope to see nationally, hopefully that'll happen here in Tennessee. We have two amazing candidates at the top of the ballot. As you know, uh, our former governor, Phil Bredesen, is running for United States Senate. Our former mayor of Nashville, Carl Dean, is running for governor. And hopefully those two gentlemen will bring in a lot of Democratic voters and help people like myself. So what kind of a reception have you been getting as you're, as you're going around campaigning? Are people really excited that there's finally a Democrat running? Are people like, you know, surprised that there's a Democrat running? What sort of uh, reaction, what kind of reception are you getting? The door-to-door canvassing has far and away been the, my favorite part of campaigning. The re, usually the response I get is, oh, thank God, we've got a Democrat on the ballot. The people are aware that Curtis has not had opponents. It's either, thank God, we have a Democrat, or you're the first politician that's been to my door. You know, door-to-door canvassing is, is kind of an old-school technique, and people just haven't done it here. And so usually I hear one of two things, thank God there's a Democrat here, and thank God somebody came here to begin with. So at first, I, I thought that the phone banking would be the easier part of it, and the door-to-door would be arduous, but it's actually been the reverse. People really didn't care for me calling them, but they loved having me come to their porch. And when mm-hmm. you get people on their porch, they're very honest with you. Mm-hmm. You know, they get off of that kind of a mob mentality that you have on social media where it's it's not personal. You don't see their faces. You're not talking to them face to face. But when you get people on their porch, they're very candid. And the reception has been fantastic. You mentioned that you were surprised that this district hadn't had a Democrat running. What does the the district look like? Where exactly in Tennessee is this? And what are the kinds of things that that people are concerned with there? Well, this district is about 40 miles northwest of Nashville. And, you know, we're kind of on the south side of Clarksville. Clarksville is this growing city. You know, 140 people a day move to Tennessee. About 85 of them are in the Nashville Basin. But we've got a pretty good chunk of them up here, too, because a lot of people commute to Nashville from here. So we're kind of on the south side and, and east side of the city proper of Clarksville. So there's just this incredible combination of the south side of the city, but also all of this rural area as well. And so I get to go door to door some places where I have to drive a half mile in between doors. And then I have a city section where it's just door, 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 door. So it's just a, an incredible cross section of, you know, of diversity. You couldn't ask for better. It it makes it very exciting to see all these different people here. And, you know, they have some major concerns. Clarksville has not had a strong advocate in our legislature. In fact, we really haven't had an advocate at all because the incumbent doesn't live here primarily. He lives in Stewart County and he owns a house here. So he really has been truly an absentee landlord, not only it have we not had a voice in Nashville at our capital, but he doesn't even live here to begin with. So when you combine those two things, what's happened is, you know, we have a state park, this beautiful state park called Dunbar cave, and there's a beautiful lake. Well, the dam broke the lane, the, the lake drained, and we needed our representative to stand up and ask the state for money to restore this, this park back to its original state. And he didn't do it. 
So of the two and a half million we needed to restore the park, and I say we because I'm one of the members of the Friends of the Park, we got a tenth of that. We got 200000 So we had to settle for a pretty poor substitute of what the park should have gotten. Also, in our district, we have a state highway here, Riverside Drive, that was falling literally into the river. It was eroding into the Cumberland River. Again, our representative did not bother to ask the state for money. So our mayor had to ask the federal government to send the Army Corps of Engineers in to reinforce it with boulders. It looks terrible. And businesses have not built up along Riverside the way they should. And again, we're looking for our representative to say, hey, we're the fifth biggest city in the state. We're soon to be, in 10 years, we'll be the fourth biggest city in the state. Why can't we get the same kind of attention that Knoxville gets, that Nashville and Chattanooga get? Why can't we get that here in Clarksville? And that's all we're asking. That's all voters are asking is, hey, we've got an awesome university here, Austin P, where I graduated from. Why does all the money go to UT and Knoxville? Why can't we get some of it over here in Clarksville? So voters are, are concerned that Curtis Johnson has not done enough for them, has not given them a voice, and they want it to, to change. So you are a factory production manager, and you've worked in manufacturing for a number of years. I'm wondering if you could talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the manufacturing industry um, and sort of some of your ideas for helping manufacturing jobs stay around, because that's been a big issue nationally, where I'm from in Youngstown, Ohio, and I'm sure in Tennessee, it's it's an issue as well. Well, I can tell you that the reduction of organized labor has not helped. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the in the 70s at its peak, the membership peak, before the Reagan administration basically went to war against the unions and cut 5 million union jobs. In the 70s, one out of three workers in the public sector worked as part of a collective bargaining unit. And now that number has gone to one out of 11. Mm-hmm. So you're talking, you know, 9% of workers now belong to a union versus 33%. And it has not helped. I think this has directly contributed to the erosion of the middle class Mm -hmm. in, in the United States. And especially here in Tennessee, what's happening, Clarksville has become kind of this colonial city for foreign corporations to come in and say, Hey, we have a young workforce here. You know, their average age is 28 in Clarksville. There's almost no union presence at all. They've got an expressway running right through town. We've got all this farmland that we can pave and turn into a new factory. And so we're seeing a lot of foreign corporations come here and break ground. And we give them all these advantages to make tons of money. We have no state income tax. That alone saves them tons of money. And the problem is they're not trickling it down as trickle down normally fails. It it certainly fails here. They're not sharing that wealth with their workers. So what's happening is they're hiring a very small core of workers for 14, 15 bucks an hour, but then everything else goes through contract and temp agencies, 950, mm-hmm. 1050 an hour, no benefits, no vacation or holidays, no clear path to permanency. And they're just spinning through their workers. The, the retention rate here is awful. Our turnover rate in our factories here is about 30%. So you're hiring five workers to keep three. And what's happening is these kids are going into these factories. They're getting four, six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. Our workers in Tennessee are working more hours now than any workers have ever worked in factories since before the 1930s, before the unions really took hold. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a lack of factories coming to Tennessee. Oh, no, we're getting tons of them. And that's why Republicans tout this. 3% 3% unemployment, right? Well, let me tell you, nobody believes in their right mind that 97 out of every 100 people are working, especially mm-hmm. not here. We have a lot of early retirees from the Army. We have a lot of military spouses and, and students. There's no way 97 out of 100 people work, but that 3% represents how many are getting paid benefits mm-hmm. from the state of Tennessee. And Tennessee is actually one of the hardest states to get unemployment compensation. But back to the factories, we have tons of factories moving in here because our legislature has rolled out the red carpet for corporations Mm -hmm. and CEOs. They give them every advantage they could ever want from the ones I've mentioned to cheap energy to 
you know, the central U.S. location. We've got all these major markets within five hours of us, like Atlanta and Cincinnati and Louisville and St. Louis, plus our own big cities. We give them all these advantages, but they don't want to share the money with their workers. So as a result, the turnover is ridiculous. And sure, the unemployment rate is low, but the quality of the jobs and the level of the wages is also low. So I'll be honest with you. I don't want another factory in this town unless it pays a living wage, which to me is 17, 18 bucks an hour with good benefits from the date of hire. When I hired into General Motors, you mentioned that I've been in manufacturing my whole life. When I hired into General Motors in 1994, I was making 13.50 an hour. That is $4 an hour more than most of these kids are making now 24 years later. And that's ridiculous because you and I both know that the cost of living is is going up. Mm-hmm. So that's all I'm saying is I know that manufacturing jobs are plentiful, but they, they've got to be good jobs. I only want the best for our Tennessee workers. They deserve it. So on a lot of your posts on social media and your, your pictures, you have a, a hashtag reunite. Can you talk about what that means to yeah. you? My graphic designer, Corey Sokol, who had the the challenging task of making this legitimate right out of the gate, Uh, a first-time politician looking legitimate right out of the gate. So she had to do all the photos, the logos, and and give us credibility uh, over a year ago. And, of course, she did a fantastic job. And uh, I would ask anyone getting into politics to consider using her. And she said, well, let's come up with a logo. And I had all these very uh, ambitious ideas, like an America of States United. And she said, okay, well, you're not running for (laughs) a U.S. seat here, okay? You're running Mm -hmm. for State House of Representatives. I said, okay, well, how about uh, Tennessee United? And she says, well, that's, that's too long. She says, I just want something short. And I just said, well, then how about reunite? You know, because that really covers so many bases, not only from a labor perspective, but also just because of the political divisions we have. And she said, well, let's make it hashtag reunite. And every time you post something, write hashtag reunite. And eventually, if you post enough stuff on social media, it will draw people to that. It'll actually become a thing, which in June of 2017 didn't think it would become a thing. People were still trying to figure out how to pronounce my name, you know, and they weren't looking me up. And so we did it. We stuck with it. And she said, everything you write, everything we post is going to have hashtag reunite on it. And so that was Corey's idea. And I like it. I I think it's very encompassing. And I think now more than ever, it's a good slogan to have. And, and you know, if, if anything happened from here and we were ever to run for a higher office, whether it was a U.S. office or whatnot, the slogan would not change. It's We have divisions in this country that haven't been seen since the Civil War. And, and we're at a turning point, and we need to reunite. It's not just reunite mm-hmm. – our country, but our community. We have people who, families that have broken up over this administration and we need to reunite. So that that's why we stuck with it. You mentioned families. You have a couple of daughters yourself. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what raising teenagers uh, sort of has, has brought to your running for office, what, how has that sort of shaped you as a, a candidate in the, the kinds of positions that you hold? Well, yes, I've, I've been married 20 years. To, I've actually been with my wife 22 years, and our daughters are 14 and 17. And I'll tell you, when you have teenage daughters, you think a little differently than you might have, than I might have 18 years ago before I had kids. It, it shapes a lot of your platforms on wage inequality. It shapes your platforms on a woman's right to choose. It makes you think of, you know, the first thing when people take 
what they think is a moral high ground and just set a line in the sand and say, absolutely not to a woman's right to choose what they're doing with their bodies. My first question is always, do you have daughters or, or, or sons? That's the first question I ask, because when you have young daughters, it does change the way you approach issues. And, and you have to think about things differently. As, as far as campaigning, one of the reasons I was running was because of my daughters. I want my daughters to live in a Tennessee where they're free to make their own decisions. And right now we have a legislature filled with Archie Bunkers that instead of looking to the future for inspiration, they're looking to the past. They're going about the good old days. Well, 100 years ago, women didn't have a right to even vote, mm-hmm. which seems absurd today that, that your, your mother and your aunt, your sister, your grandmother, they didn't have a right to vote. They raised you, but you wouldn't give them the right to, to vote. So just think in the last hundred years, how far we've come. And then in Tennessee, they want to work backwards. They want to go back to the fifties and back to the sixties. And that's the kind of laws they write in Tennessee. And what I'm saying is I want lawmakers who govern with morality. I'm not asking our lawmakers to govern morality. I'm not asking our legislature to be a clergy. They're not. There, there's no steeple on that Capitol building. Uh, it's not a church. It's a place where we ask legislators to write laws that positively affect everyone in Tennessee, not just their friends and their donors. And part of the reason I told my wife I'm going to run is because I have girls who need a lawmaker who looks out for them with, with the same interest that he looks out for everybody else. And we didn't have that. I guarantee we didn't have that. We don't have it right now. It's, it's going to have to change in order to make that happen. But yeah, having young girls, and of course there's so many different challenges now for young people with social media, uh, with the bullying that comes along with that, with you, you have to make good decisions in, in the age of social media. Because what you put online can be online forever. And it was also one of one of the planks that I had about free meals in public schools, K through eight, came from my 14-year-old daughter. I was at school with her, and we saw these kids in the back of the cafeteria eating one morning. And I said, who are they? And she said, well, they're the poor kids. And she didn't mean to to, to say something cruel. It was just, that's the stigma. Well, they're the poor kids, so they get free breakfast. And just hearing her say that started this this research about nutrition and inclusion and retention and attendance. And, and it, it led to a platform that's actually been overwhelmingly popular, which is that I believe that our public school students should get two free meals a day, hot meals, in public schools, K through eight, because we already have the money to fund it. And that came directly from my daughter. Dennis, is there anything else that you would like to make sure that we talk about? Well, I, I'm I'm really excited, not only for the outcome of my own <laughs> election, but I'm just excited to see the turnout in November. I'm excited to see what happens in Tennessee because we do have such great candidates above me on the on the ticket. I'm anxious to see what kind of referendum we have on this administration nationwide. I, I, I'm, I'm so excited to see how many state legislative seats flip. I, I hope a thousand of them flip. I hope 60 seats flip in the House of Representatives, the U.S. level. I hope to see five to 10 Senate seats flip. I, I'm so excited to see what happens. But it won't happen if people don't vote. And like I said, what we saw in Tennessee with, with with the last election, the presidential election, was people stayed home. They, they didn't think that Donald Trump was going to win, and they assumed Hillary was going to win, and they didn't bother to vote for her. They didn't do their duty, their diligence, and vote for her, and we see what happened. So I just – I'm almost at the point of begging people, please vote please get out and vote. Don't let this go on another minute. And I hope that every candidate is focused on getting people out to vote. 
And that is one of their primary reasons. And then the other thing I would say is if they haven't put their primary focus on going door to door, do it. Go door to door. Spend all day Saturday, all day Sunday, go door to door, because that's where people let their guard down and they're honest with you. And that has been the most enriching part of the campaign for us. And that's why we, we drew so many votes in the primary. You know, we drew over 3,000 votes. That was the most of any county north of Dixon here was, I truly believe, because we had gone door to door for months. And so we were actually able to perform very well in the primary, considering I didn't have a single yard sign out. I hadn't put out a single mailer. I hadn't run a single ad. But yet we we had a very good turnout in uh, District 68 for Democrats. If our listeners would like to help your campaign, how can they do that? Well, there's two ways to do it online. You can go to Act Blue. If you go to Act Blue and type in Dennis Potvin, District 68, Tennessee, it'll come up and they can donate there. Or they can go to our website, www.dennispotvindemocrat.com. And it's under the Join the Fight tab. And if they just click on that, it's Corey's set it up to as easy as she possibly could to just say, okay, this is the one I want to donate. And we need the money. The incumbent, even though we've outraised him this year, he still has $108,000 left over from all these other elections. He didn't have an opponent. So he's got a pretty substantial war chest to spend. And so we need, we're probably about 25,000. So he's got about four times the money that we do. And he's going to buy billboards and TV ads. And meanwhile, we're going to focus on mailers and yard signs. We're going to do the ground game. And he's, we're going to concede the air to him. And so, we, yeah, we need all the help we can get financially as well. All right. Excellent. And we'll put links for that up on our website as well. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and thank you yeah, for thank you. stepping up and being the person to run and make sure there's a, a good, strong Democrat running in that seat. Well, you know, thankfully, across the state of Tennessee, I think there's 117 legislative races between the House, Senate, and the governor's seat. And if I'm not mistaken, there were 113 candidates for those 117 seats. That's, I think that's what I heard. So it's an unprecedented level of Democratic turnout for, for candidacy. So like Jennifer, like Kate, uh, a lot of people who never thought they would ever run for, for a political seat have stepped up. And you know, we're all busy. We, we all have a full-time job. We all raise children. We have hobbies and, and friends. And we just had to tell everybody, hey, I need to take a year and a half and do this. You know, I need to climb this mountain and I need to do it for my community. And so it's not exclusive to me by any means whatsoever. There's so many people doing it. And I'm proud of all of them. Thank you so much, and we'll be watching your race in the, the very near future when early voting starts. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> it, like I said, it's exciting. Well, thank you, Kelly and Sophie. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off of the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with permission of the band. Our logo and other original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and was created for use by this podcast.